Thank you very much. The argument I'd like to lay out for you is one about the revolution that's occurring in global economic governance as we sit here. What it is that this power shift is, what it means for whether or not we need institutions in the global economy, institutions like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, and the United Nations, or whether we'd be better off without them. And then, across this talk, to finish by looking and telling you a little bit about some of the research that's being done here in Oxford, and in particular in the program I'm directing, that answers some of these questions or is setting out to answer them. But let's start with the, with the power shift in the global economy. And let me start by just taking you 10 years back to a very widely held view of what the power shift in the global economy was. And that view was that power was shifting in the global economy to private actors, to private sources of entrepreneurship, but also to private systems of governance. The argument was that as we saw more and more transnational investment, multinational enterprises, global accountancy companies, global banking interactions, global investment, that we were moving into a world in which the new governance, the management of the global economy could be private. It could be private networks of accountants, private networks of bankers. It could be a less formal kind of governance. And as a result, we don't need the stuffy, old-fashioned, multilateral institutions that were created after the Second World War. These had somehow become anachronistic and no longer useful in a global economy where actually they, at best, were irrelevant and at worst would somehow dampen and constrain these new entrepreneurial forces that were global, whilst the multinational, the multilateral institutions are, of course, intergovernmental. They bring governments together. So let me start by saying, giving you two reasons why I think that view of the power shift is deeply flawed and why it is that a very different power shift is taking place today. Now, one reason will be absolutely apparent to every one of you that's picked up a newspaper in the last two days, and that's that these light regulatory informal networks, be it of accountants, of bankers, um, and of financial sector actors, has been shown not to have worked as a system to sustain financial stability. What we're seeing is the putting together of the largest ever bailout of the financial sector in the United States, and Britain struggling to work out whether the British response will be similar to the United States response or different, and with what consequences. So the first problem is about regulation, particularly in the financial sector. But what I want to, to draw your attention to is a different flaw in the argument that's equally important and equally relevant to the way the current financial crisis is managed. And that's a power shift not to private actors, not to the hedge funds and so forth that was so emphasized 10 years ago, 
but a power shift which is to emerging economies and increasingly to entities seen as representing sovereign interests, not private sector interests. So let's think about what that power shift looks like. Let's think about it in several domains. Think about the energy domain, oil and gas, where 10, 20 years ago, we, th we could point to the seven sisters in the oil industry, to an Anglo-American group of private sector companies, and say, that's where power and authority in this sector lie. Today, almost a half of those resources are in the hands, and an increasing percentage, are in the hands of national oil companies of emerging economies. And note, these are national oil companies. These are the oil companies of Venezuela, of China, of the Gulf states. And what's important about the fact that they're national oil companies is not that they necessarily act any differently to commercial oil companies. It's that they're perceived by governments dependent on oil as posing a big political risk. The fear is a political one. So I, what I'm, well, I'm not saying that these nationalized oil companies are all acting according to the geostrategic interests of the governments. What I'm saying is there's a huge fear that they will. That's in energy. What about in money? 50, 60 years ago, when the system that we have set up today was established, the United States was the largest creditor and remained that in the global economy for a long time, with the dollar as the core reserve currency in the global economy. Today, the United States is the world's largest debtor. What that means is that international financial stability depends as much on decisions being made in Washington as on decisions being made in any of the countries that now are sitting on the world's largest reserves. The reserves of the world are sitting in emerging market economies. And that means that financial stability depends on decisions being made in those countries. What about investment? Hedge funds were a huge part of the story of 1997. But today, 11 years later, sovereign wealth funds command well over double. And in fact, it was well over double already a year and a half ago, and now it's hugely more than hedge funds in the global economy. And those sovereign wealth funds, although most of them would say they're acting as purely economic investors, carry with them a host of what are seen in Europe and the United States as political threats. There's a real fear that the sovereign wealth funds of the Gulf states and of China will be used to acquire strategic control of strategic assets, whether they're ports, oil companies, or the major banks in, the, in Europe and the United States. And likewise, we can point to trade and what's happening in global trade and where which countries are now producing. For the first time in the last quarter of 2006, China, the value of China, China's merchandise exports exceeded that of the United States. So what we're seeing is a diffusion of power. Now, we all know that power is shifting in the global economy. But the point that I'm making is that power isn't just shifting to emerging economies. It's shifting to entities that are seen as 
political, that are seen as sovereign and as representing in the bottom line, at the end of the day, sovereign interests. And sovereign interests which are not seen as commensurate to those of Europe and the United States. So where does that, where does that, what does that mean for global economic governance? Well, it means it puts into sharp question whether in that world we need multilateral institutions. And I'm going to argue to you that it means that we particularly do, that we do even more than a decade ago. So let me take you back for a moment to think about that proposition, as you'd expect me to, since I'm an Oxford don, let me take you back in history for a moment, to the end of globalization in the interwar period. I mean, we tend to think of globalization as an, a set of inexorable forces. These are unstoppable forces um, driven by technology and entrepreneurship and an interdependence of, in the global economy. And don't forget that in the 1890s and in the first decade of the 20th century, people thought the same. Huge writing about what was then called interdependence. And reflections on how unlikely it would be or how futile it would be to go to war given that growing interdependence. A vein of writing that we've seen recur and recur in the modern phase of globalization. So even in 1911, we saw Norman Angel writing his, at the time, very popular book, The Futility of War, arguing that Germany and Britain were so interdependent financially that it simply was inconceivable, or it would be not inconceivable, it would be so economically costly for them to go to war that it would be unlikely. And of course, three years later, they were at war. But more importantly for us is not that war. It's the end of that period which some called the world's greatest ever globalization in the 1920s and 30s. And it's to say, what caused the end of globalization? Why was it that in the 1920s and 30s, governments suddenly each closed their barriers, put up trade barriers, competitively devalued, closed themselves off from the global economy in a way that had been seen as unthinkable previously. And Harold James, the economic historian, whose, whose title I'm cribbing when I say the end of globalization, gives us an account which really goes through the economic causes of the collapse and finds them insufficient to explain the collapse, and focuses on, on one issue, which was the lack of trust and the fear of, that governments had of the political intents of the various actors in the global economy, the failure of governments collectively to take the actions necessary to prevent a crash. What it points to is the need for an institution to permit governments to actually do that. And that's what global economic institutions do. They create a set of rules, a set of monitoring and verification procedures, a set of habits among governments, which permit them, instead of each taking individual actions which lead to a collective disaster, to take a collective action which prevents that disaster. And that's been the story of global economic institutions since the end of the Second World War. So why, you might ask, is it that today, as the world faces such tumult and such crisis 
not just in the financial sector, but in the other sectors. Why is it that the institutions that we have seem so irrelevant? Why is it that with a financial disaster breaking all over the world, the International Monetary Fund, set up to ensure international financial stability, seems irrelevant? Why is it that in a world where trade has become so important for every major emerging and industrialized economy, as well as for the developing world, why is it that the trade talks have collapsed, that the WTO is staggering on its feet, incapable of bringing together an agreement in this Doha round of ne negotiations? Why is it when so many governments are promising to double and redouble aid that the World Bank is curiously marginal to most of their aid, when here we have an institution built to permit governments to coordinate and cooperate on aid? So why, in other words, do we have these institutions to deal with exactly this kind of crisis, and yet they seem irrelevant? And that takes me to my last point about this power shift, which is what needs to happen to make the institutions relevant. Why do we need them, and what needs to happen to make them relevant? So if we take the International Monetary Fund and we say, well, why has it become so irrelevant? What we find is an institution that, for some 60 years, has been quite neatly and at times strategically governed by the, by the world's then largest seven economies, the G7. And so the, the International Monetary Fund has acquired a habit, a directorate, an informal directorate that manages its relations and whose power is embodied in the institution. That G7 now find themselves, on the one hand, incapable of changing the institution, because that would involve giving up power, and on the other hand, determined to try to affect the, issue, the, the crises that are blowing over the global economy. And so they pronounce, as they've done at recent G7 finance ministers' meetings, they pronounce on, responsible, on principles for responsible lending. They pronounce on the principles that sovereign wealth funds in the rest of the world should have. And yet, they have absolutely no power or authority to make those decisions work. So what would it take, if we just take the International Monetary Fund, what would it take in that case for the institution to become relevant? Well, first, it would take looking to where the world's largest reserves are and trying to engage those countries in the organization. How could we do that? How could we get China, Brazil, India, the Gulf states, Singapore, and other holders of the, of the world's real reserves, not just to sit politely at the table of the IMF, but actually to engage and to trust the institution as a lender of last resort or as a coordinator of monetary policy? It's a really interesting question, which I think, again, history gives us a little bit of an answer to. Because let's remember that back when the International Monetary Fund was founded in 1947, the holder of the world's largest reserves at the time did not want what it called entangling commitments. It did not want to be bound into international institutions. It had been reluctant to enter the Second World War. It wanted to stay away from the entangling commitments which would prevent it from fulfilling its own destiny, to use the language of the time. In other words, the challenge for Europe, the challenge for the other states back in 1947, 
was to try to find a way to get the United States not just to entangle, but to be right at the heart of the system, to get an, a reluctant United States to actually be the center, the foundation of this new institution. And they did it. And they did it through what I would call now four powerful assurance mechanisms. They said, okay, you're unwilling to commit to this institution. But what if there were these things that could assure you? The, the discussion, needless to say, did not go quite that way. <laughs> but these were the, insur these were the insur assurance mechanisms that came out of the negotiation at Bretton Woods. So the first was, we'll put the institution in your capital. It'll be in Washington, D.C. Of course, there was a huge political debate with others not wanting it to be there. But the outcome was the IMF would be in Washington, D.C. Second, we'll weight the voting power of the organization. We'll give you the largest percentage of votes and we'll give you a veto power over any major decision the institution takes. Third, we'll give you a tremendous say in the managing director of the organization, who will be the chief executive officer of the organization, who will decide all promotions, hirings, staff matters, and operational matters in the organization. We'll give you a huge influence over that decision. It'll be a European, but you'll always have the right informally to veto the choice of the managing director. And fourthly, we'll, get, we'll make sure the organization has a staff that you believe are the right staff. In other words, we won't go the United Nations way with staff representing all of the members. You can have a staff trained, for example, in America's top departments of economics with no quotas for different other countries. So these four assurance mechanisms were put in place and the United States took its place at the center of the organization. Now let me just flick that on its head for a moment and say to you, what if we think of those four assurance mechanisms today? We have to, in fact, over the, last four, over the last year and a half with the Global Economic Governance Program, I've been doing meetings of finance ministers in Asia, in the Middle East, in Latin America, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And what's become clear is that none of these regions are going to take this organization seriously or engage with it seriously unless they have a greater voice and a greater stake. Put a different way, we could use those assurance mechanisms to go to Beijing and say, well, what if an international monetary fund were based somewhere else? Let's think about where it's located. Let's think about whether you have a veto on the board. Let's think about how the organization is staffed. And if we don't do that, my argument is the international monetary fund will stay irrelevant. The argument back, as I've had this argument out in Washington, is why do you want to mess with the IMF? It works beautifully. It's this executively controlled, small, coherent, well-functioning organization. To which my response is, yes, it's like a Maserati that you can't afford the petrol for, right? You keep it in the garage, it's never tested. And now the International Monetary Fund, because it depends for its income on countries borrowing from it, on its fee-paying clients, it's now having to sell off its wheels and its steering wheel and its leather upholstery, and it's still sitting in the garage and not being used. So either the institution is left simply irrelevant in the garage, or we have to think radically 
about how to reconfigure it so that the emerging countries who are sitting on the world's reserves trust it enough to give it authority over issues of international monetary cooperation. And we can say the same, we can make similar arguments about the World Bank and about the World Trade Organization. World Trade Organization, of course, is very different. There we're not talking about who gets to choose the head or who gets to choose the staff. Because the World Trade Organization, in the end, is a negotiation among countries. But the World Trade Organization is failing for a similar reason to the IMF and the World Bank's marginalization. It's failing because prior to this latest round of negotiations, the trade negotiations acquired the habit of dealing with the issues of interest just of the core industrialized trading countries. The pact, the secret pact of the Uruguay round was a very simple one. It's all parties to this agreement will agree to accept binding commitments on what we, the powerful countries, need. And in return, we will think about doing something about trade and agriculture and the other issues that developing countries are so interested in. And then having failed to deliver on that promise, what the, what the industrialized country trading powers have found is that emerging economies are simply saying, okay, well, we won't agree then. We'll simply walk out. We won't take part in these negotiations until you start seriously showing us that you're willing to play your part of the implicit agreement that we came to before this round of negotiations began. What's powerful about that is that this is the first time that emerging economies collectively have taken that position. This is the first time they've had the power to actually simply get up from the table and walk and thereby collapse the negotiation. So it underscores, in a way, the argument that without this quite dramatic transformation in these institutions, the institutions themselves simply become irrelevant. In brief, the power shift in the global economy is going to require both some robust regulation, particularly in the financial sector, and some robust institutions across money, trade, investment, and aid. We can talk more about aid um, in, the, in the questions. And to get there is going to require a shift well beyond that which is currently being considered in Washington, D.C., let me take you back to September last year, where I sat at a dinner in Washington, D.C., having been in discussions with the IMF and World Bank about their reform proposals. Because they know they have to change, but what, what they're thinking about changing is to give some of the emerging market economies 1% more voting power, to give, you know, to... to um, in the IMF, I mean, I shouldn't be too sarcastic, but, you know, the dramatic the dramatic revolution in the IMF in the choice of the managing director before last was that it, it was pushed very hard that the curriculum vitae of the candidate that Europe and the United States had quietly agreed in the room should have to be circulated to the board. <laughs> this, is, this is not governance transformation, um, but that's about as far as they're managing to get in Washington, D.C., so I sat in Washington, D.C. a year ago, and 
said, well, don't you think some further transformation is required? And we talked about that. And what struck me was a tremendous complacency about what was happening in the rest of the world. And in particular, there was the argument that you, in the end, all countries, including the Asian economies, would have to come back to the IMF. They would have to have recourse in the main, because they will never agree with one another. We all know the historic reasons why Korea, Japan, and China are unlikely to forge close friendships, and these were all rehearsed to me. But a week later, I found myself in Beijing at this meeting of finance officials that we were hosting Oxford University together with Peking University. And on my left was the Japanese asset management company that was, that, that, that was helping to sponsor the meeting, speaking in beautifully fluent Mandarin to the Chinese official on his left. Two young Chinese banking regulators on my right speaking in perfectly fluent Japanese to the Japanese finance officials on their right. And I sat thinking, this is very different to the complacency of Washington, D.C. But even more what, what underscored the difference to me was the fact, the assumption in Washington that what was going on in Washington would be the centerpiece of everyone else's conversation. And the fact that it, the conversation in Beijing made absolutely no mention of what was going on in Washington. It made absolutely no mention. And that, to me, underscores two things. That power really has shifted in these domains and that it's going to take considerably more effort on the part of the G7 countries, well, in particular of the United States and Europe, to adjust themselves to that shift and to start taking some of the measures necessary to actually manage the shift effectively. What I haven't done is, um, because I want to stop and take questions, um, I know lots of you have expertise in this area. The one issue that I haven't gone into but that I'm very happy to in questions is in the domain of aid, where we're seeing exactly the same scenario played out with the emerging donors becoming, the emerging economies becoming increasingly more powerful donors, and in the example of China in Africa, this creating a hysterical reaction in the United States and Europe about the toxic aid that China is giving to Africa. And that's a further um, subject that we've been examining in GEG, and that I've just finished, and Chinese aid officials, to really look at what the composition of China's aid is, to ask why is the West hysterical about it, and is there actual empirical evidence that the hysteria of the West is well-founded? But we can go into that in questions. I'd like to stop and take some questions from you. Thank you very much indeed, Nari. That's raised all sorts of issues and topics and uh, brought in all sorts of countries. Could I just uh, kick off by asking you about Russia? Because I don't think you mentioned Russia particularly. Is that because you see that that is not part of this power shift in the global economy? Or where do you see Russia fitting in? No, Russia, Russia is. Um, it is part of this power shift in the global economy. It's sitting on a massive stack of reserves itself. And to understand why these countries have amassed their own reserves, you really do need to recall that in 1997 there was a financial crisis that began in Thailand and immediately, like a bushfire, spread across East Asia. And that when Korea, came, when Korea sought assistance from the IMF, the IMF first produced a package of money and conditions for Korea 
that became public sometime later. But before that package was presented to the Korean government, the US Treasury intervened to add several dozen extra conditions, seeing this as an opportunity to seize to get some of what they thought Korea should do and some of what they wanted Korea to do or certain sectors wanted Korea to do in the first instance. And what this did, what that package in Korea did, was really, I think, put the nail in the coffin of IMF credibility in Asia. It, be it became absolutely discredited. I traveled through Korea in 1999 and still right across in the south and in the west of Korea, this was called the IMF crisis. Russia then went into crisis in 1998. And similarly, um, the IMF, after some six years of close engagement with Russia, became branded the demon. The IMF became um, synonymous for Russians with the instrument of Western aims to erode Russia's greatness. And don't believe, as so many, again, in Washington do, that that's a view just held by the extreme right in Russia. Even right back in 96, when I made my first research trip to Russia, that view was held right across the spectrum, including by some of the sort of Western sympathetic reformers. So the IMF suffered this incredible discrediting in both countries. And what that meant is these countries then chose as um, Akbar's colleague, Jose Antonio Acampo, puts it, to self-insure. They said, we can never go to the IMF again. Any polit politician that does is committing political suicide. We will never, ever go near the institution again for assistance. Therefore, what we have to do is stockpile our own reserves. And that's what each of these countries has done, amassing reserves in their central banks. So Russia's done that. And... If you ask about the broader picture, yes, Russia is certainly one of these emerging economies, and the response of the West is very similar in, in Russia in the broad sense in which I've put it, that the habits of the past are dictating the policy, policies. If we just look at the energy sector um, negotiations with Russia, we see a Europe that's been trying to get Russia to sign the energy charter for several years, a charter which Russia said right from the get-go was a non-starter, that it wouldn't accept that was unfair, unequal, and so forth, and yet which Europe has continued to try to push. Um, and still not really, I would argue, come up with a coherent, alternative, collective policy in respect of Russia.